0: Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, looking at the politics of tech from around the world. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be diving deep into DuckDuckGo, the privacy friendly search engine taking on the big guys. But first, our regular panelists, Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea, And Guardian Australia managing director Dan Stinton join me in a roundup of the latest news. The discussion today. Normally, we have each of our panelists bringing a particular um, issue to the table, but it seems that everything is really merging into the one. This week, there's been this big conference called the Sydney Dialogue in, of all places, Sydney. I'm sponsored by ASPI, which is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. We'll talk a bit more about ASPI later. We had the big announcement earlier this week by Google that they were going to put a billion dollars into Australia. We had Scott Morrison's big announcement that um, there were now priority tech areas that Australia would focus on. And there was a bit of a nudge, nudge out there that this was all about managing China power. And there's this whole thought that we're entering I guess, what we could call a digital cold war. So we thought we'd just work through all these issues today, kick them around, see what comes out the other end before we get into talking about some of the alternate tech models. So let's start with Google. A billion dollars sounds like a lot of money if you say it quickly, and it got a lot of media. So Google made this announcement, the Digital Future Initiative, focused on creating jobs and building Australia's technology fundamentals putting money into the CSIRO to explore clean energy, natural hazard management, protect the Barrier Reef and set up a quantum computing effort at Macquarie Uni. So this kind of sounded like, and and the way it was presented in the mainstream media was that after starting the year, threatening to shut search in Australia because of those terrible Media companies wanting some money out of the bargaining code. All of a sudden, everything was good and all things forgiven. And Google is now part of our um, our future. Um, So I guess there's a few places to go here. One is: is this enough money to make any difference? A billion sounds a lot. That's 200 million bucks a year. I did an off the back of the shelf calculation. Google booked 5.2 billion revenue in Australia last year. Most of it gets um sent offshore to be sort of on books of countries that don't expect so much tax to be paid they actually paid 50 million in tax on the back of that so that's about one percent so 200 mil is an extra four percent so they're up to five percent in tax so i guess the first question is is this money a windfall or is it a very small amount that they should be putting in Um, i'll let you kick off with that lizzie and then we could maybe look at where that money is going to go
1: I mean, I almost have the opposite reaction to you, Peter, in the sense that it is a very large amount of money and the question is what are they buying with that kind of cash? So, of course, it's not a lot in the context of their revenue, but it's a lot in terms of research. And I think this is an increasing problem for academia, how you deal with the fact that large companies invest in tertiary education, research and other initiatives, and they're in competition potentially with government, or at least, um, or or alternatively, government kind of vacates the field and then allows it to be dominated by private sector money. I mean, I think one way to think about this is to imagine if a fossil fuel company, for example, was investing in a school of science at a a major university, I think we'd be quite sceptical. And I think we should, would uh, exercise a similar kind of scepticism in relation to the devotion of this kind of funds to uh, the advancement of technology, the elevation of education in this and research in this space. And So I think this is a real problem for us. How do we make sure that the work that's being done in this field is going to be quarantined from a company like Google? And with a figure that large, I think it is quite difficult. I mean, this is one of the primary reasons that we do have a tax and redistribution system because it avoids this kind of problem being created and essentially the privatisation of of, um, knowledge and and tertiary education institutions. Um, So that's my primary concern. The fact that it wasn't... it was not the problem that it was too little relative to their tax um, contribution in an ideal world, but in fact, that it was, it was very large relative to the other kinds of contributions that the government makes in this space. And that's my cause for alarm.
0: Dan, Google um, does lots of partnerships. What sort of strings are normally attached when Google invests, say, behind, you know, they do news initiatives, they're, you know, going into a whole bunch of different education health. Is it just here's some money or is there assumptions that go alongside it?
2: I think it depends on the projects, uh, Peter. I mean, I've got experience of uh, taking grants from Google previously at a couple of different organisations uh, as part of their Google News Initiative Fund. And, you know, you, you pitch to Google for grant funding to do something in particular. We we pitched to to create a new... Sort of podcast app and and bunch of content off the back of that some years ago and and um, it was a great project that there was sort of no, no certainly no editorial strings attached that came with that it did make us a little bit uneasy I guess about the fact that we were applying to Google for the funds but they were made available to everyone so we made the most of it I mean I think I take your point by the way Lizzie that that perhaps if perhaps it's a combination of your point and Peter's point if if Google paid a higher level of tax then the government could decide to invest a much higher level into research in these areas rather than relying on the private sector to do so. And I think that's a pretty relevant point. But um, I think it's also important to realise just the context that Google is doing this in, right? So you've you've just come off a major, very bruising battle with the government off the back of the news media bargaining code. Um, On the other side of that, Google basically put down their swords, did a whole bunch of uh, agreements with different media companies, including The Guardian, I should stress, and is continuing to do deals with, with much smaller players as well, that's happening at a time when Facebook has um, said that they are not going to do any more deals and has uh, refused to do an agreement with uh, The Conversation or SBS, which is you know the, the second public broadcaster. So um, it's hard to see that as um, anything other than a middle finger to the government. And then there's a whole bunch of other regulation coming towards Google. There's the Advertising Services Inquiry, which the ACCC report uh, came out on that about a month ago. You know, that was uh, probably more targeted at Google than I was even expecting, um, you know, and I work in this space. Uh, there's also the privacy review, which uh, we've talked about in this forum a few weeks ago. Um, that initial discussion paper from the Attorney General's office has just uh, dropped. Um, that's proposing, um, or that and the HC are proposing data separation regulation, if you like, to be put in place, which would limit Google's business quite substantially. So, I mean, I think this billion dollars is probably also a bit of a PR exercise, a pretty expensive one. And I, I think that, by the way, it's still some good will no doubt come out of it. But nonetheless, it's coming at a time where I think Google is is trying to be seen as a really good corporate citizen um, and hopefully um, push back against some of the regulation which, which might be coming their way, which could impact on their business.
0: You'd also um, assume, Lizzie, that part of this is embedding their technology platforms in the solutions they're co-investing in, right? So it's not just philanthropy it's very much targeted partnerships and if you think back to schools now base their 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 classroom infrastructure on Google products and the health system is very reliant and so when Google did threaten to pull and you started to look through what the potential implications of that were there was this huge technological sovereign risk. Now is there a risk that if CSIRO you know ties its sales to Google go on, I'm dealing with all these really big um, existential challenges, we're just being dragged further into their thrall.
1: Yeah, you think about something like natural resource or or natural hazard management, I should say, which is one of the areas in which they may end up working with researchers, you can see how you would entrench something like Google Maps and then the work that's done becomes complementary to that product. I mean, the other field is quantum computing, and I think this is where we ask Peter to explain what quantum computing is. But the point is that uh, that kind of research that they might do in partnership with an institution I think Macquarie is the listed institution then becomes something that can fuel the expansion of their business they get access to some of this research early potentially get to integrate it into their um, their business model so it's entrenching their legacy products but also allowing them to to develop new ones ahead of their competition so again I mean Dan described it as an expensive investment I feel like it's pretty good value for them um, for a company like this that's banking a lot of profit and it gets to now determine where what would normally be um, a a tax liability, where that gets invested, and it's going to suit their business model. And this is the problem when companies become too large. This is exactly what, you know, historically antitrust lawyers and and policymakers have warned against, and that it's not actually a a threat to consumers, Um, the problem of monopolization, it's a threat to democracy. This is I think, a sophisticated example of that. We normally think about that in terms of things like the polarization of public debate, but here's the other way in which you integrate a business and a business model into public institutions, and then it becomes very difficult to challenge, to regulate, to alter that relationship between government and and corporations. So, Peter, can you tell us what uh, quantum computing is?
0: Yeah, thanks, Lizzie. Um, (laughs) Not really. Um, but it was one of the areas that the prime minister's all in for. So I try. I, I'm not. I'm not a man of huge intellect, and, and, and this is an area where I do not thrive. But from what I understand, it's a shift from binary coding to multi-directional coding. Somewhere in there is Schrodinger's cat, who I think is a bit like Chester, except being sort of exposed to both um, radioactive waste and um, a bottle of poison. So. We can go there if we want. Um, What I do know is that Google is one of the best in breed on quantum computing. So we've got the Prime Minister announcing quantum computing as a major national priority. Um, And we've also got the guys that have just given us a billion dollars to co-invest really being standing up right in the middle of it, all in the middle of a big national conference on our strategic um, future under the, I guess, the shadow of both the AUKUS subs deal and the quad. And we'll get to the ASPE conference in a sec. One other thing I'll say, when I was doing my research on quantum computing, I was looking for an easy explainer. The best one was actually delivered by Talus, which is one of the defence industry giants who funds ASPE. So some I don't know if I'm a... Cons- we can go there in a sec. But before we get to the ASPE conference, Dan, do you just want to give us a bit of an overview about Morrison's big announcement, which was the keynote opening address to this conference?
2: Sure. Before I do, I mean, I think I wouldn't attempt to describe quantum computing either, but I think the key point of it is that it's... it's uh, a huge acceleration on the capabilities uh, of computing power uh, in a, in a, on a pretty small microprocessor. So it basically is going to 10x the, the the abilities of computers. So I think that's why so many of these companies are pouring so much money into it, including Google. But, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll focus on a speech that, that you just referenced there, Pete, which is that Scott Morrison, he made at the inaugural Sydney Dialogue event um, run by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE, as you mentioned. Um, he, he gave this speech on Wednesday morning. In the speech, Morrison flagged that quantum computing, uh, as we just touched on, artificial intelligence, cyber security services, autonomous vehicles, all of these will come under increased government scrutiny, particularly around foreign interference as part of the federal government's new critical technologies framework and action plan. So, look, it includes a list of 63 critical uh, technologies and nine areas of focus. These include things like minerals extraction and processing, advanced communication, artificial intelligence, There's there's a bunch. Um, and I guess the point here is is that they're they're trying to uh effectively highlight the technologies which I think australia doesn't want he didn't mention China, but that Australia doesn't want to uh, lose control of if you like and and which he wants us and and friendly democracies to to in order to 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 keep control of, hopefully recognizing the importance that they're going to play in, in our economy and society going forward so i mean I thought it was fascinating that that he's he's sort of He's kind of, without mentioning China, he's signalling the technologies which I think are going Mm. to become critical to our future and and almost putting a stake in the ground and saying, um, well, which would you rather have it? Would you rather have us and friendly democracies like the US and the UK controlling these things or would you rather have China doing it and here's your incentive Mm. to do so? And it,
0: It was interesting. He didn't mention China in the speech, but he dropped the speech to media to run the day of the speech, and they'd obviously been backgrounded that this was all about China because that's how they'd presented it. So Mm. what do you reckon about this, Lizzie? Is um, our national government coming up with a long-term tech agenda where the main problem they seem to be trying to solve to push back against what um, has been described by Facebook's Nick Clegg as the authoritarian internet? Is that the biggest problem we need to be solving at the moment?
1: Yeah, it was interesting that Nick Clegg's speech because he talks about the limits of sovereignty um, and how, you know, the internet is supposed to be this great borderless place and that if we increase our our idea or focus on sovereignty, that puts it at risk. But I I think it's quite important to realise that what was not said in that speech as well, which is I don't think Nick Clegg is talking about breaking down sovereign borders with a country like China. I think he's talking about... um, creating a space uh, that's essentially borderless for the exchange of information and for the, you know, the likes of doing business as Facebook does between our our allies uh, in a diplomatic sense, you know, being the AUKUS treaty and the like. So I, I do think this is a transition away from seeing technology policy as something that is just like any other industry towards integrating it better into our capabilities as a diplomatic nation um you know potentially our militarization and surveillance capabilities as well um and that this is where they see the future of technology i mean the other component of course which we discussed last week on on this show was the um the use of technology to combat climate change rather than say limiting the fossil fuel industry so i think they also see technology as important in that respect but this conference really seems to be a transition and a key platform and turning point for the public discussion about how the tech industry will facilitate the long-term diplomatic and military ambitions of Australia as part of a coalition, um, which is, you know, largely still the same in the the form of the Five Eyes, which is the intelligence sharing alliance that um, Edward Snowden revealed publicly, the English-speaking countries who've aligned on, on um, intelligence sharing and then moving towards militarisation of that as well, I think, over the long term. And I then
0: mean, you've got a um, bit of dissonance there as well because one of the honoured guests at this conference was Narendra Modi, who's um, part of the Quad, obviously, India. And there was a great article this week from um, Elaine Pearson from Human Rights Watch just questioning whether that's the guy you want on stage with you when you're talking about democratic values, right? And the way that they've used the internet over there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the way that um, Modi's political party is making use of uh, technology is very oppressive. And uh, organisations like Human Rights Watch, our friends at Access Now, have been raising lots of concerns about their progress towards more authoritarian practices as a a political ruling party, and implementing that in terms of technology. And in all sorts of different ways, they're regulating social media, but they're also implementing, you know, a very controversial scheme for digital identity, which has the capacity to be very oppressive. And this, I think, is the for me the great disappointment um, of what could have been quite different had um, India taken a more democratic path and Hindu nationalism has proven to be extremely successful politically and at great cost to minorities in India and uh, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable about the direction that it's heading in. I would just say as well about China um, I was looking back at this because I remember Tristan Harris uh, our friend at um, the centre oh gosh I was about to say centre for responsible tech but it's the centre for humane technology um, who's some Someone I think we've tossed around a bit as a figure is is perceived as being the conscious of Silicon Valley for better or for worse. And, you know, he did testify in April talking exactly about this. And he's largely perceived or I think increasingly perceived as someone who presents a more Humane face of technology for the industry, um, for the likes of companies like Google and Facebook, you know, obviously critiquing them, but also uh, positing them as a kind of clean alternative to authoritarian forms of tech. And that's exactly how we articulated it. Um, and so this, this, uh, this, I guess, this tension between Chinese technology. And, you know, Anglophone Western technology or democratic technology is being set up, I think, and has been for quite some time. And it's interesting to see where some of these industry groups and and, um, civil society organisations that often do some of the political bidding for industry uh, are aligning on that topic.
0: Yeah, it was also interesting to see Rupert Murdoch's statements at his annual general meeting um, this week where really his, his whole take was that the the repression of the internet was about stifling free speech and particularly speech at the, at the limits, um, the speech that's eroding American democracy with the um, willing assistance of some of Rupert's own outlets. Um, but it does create... Cold wars are always about good guys and bad guys, aren't they? But there's a lot more noise around the edges, Dan. If we're going to set up a digital Cold War, what are we actually fighting for?
2: Oh. Well, that's a pretty big question, um, Peter. But I, I, mean, I give I you the it's... big questions. <laughs> uh, yeah, I should be more prepared for the perhaps. But um, I mean, look if you if you look at this in the context of what Lizzie just mentioned with India and and India effectively increasingly clamping down on the freedom of information. I mean, I think it's worth just going taking a step back for a second and looking at the history of this. Right. So you, you basically had the internet largely operating on. On US standards and and US values really for for most of its life up until now. Um, The exception to that was China, which I think way back in the late 90s started to control things and I think released their their great great firewall um, uh, about 2005, 2006, thereabouts at least. And so they were kind of the exception. They were like trying to control um, all the information that was available online and and limit the information that that their citizens could see as just one way of controlling things. Um, Most people back then, including me, by the way, thought that could never work, but they've proven that it has worked. And we've now got India going down a path, which is broadly similar. I mean, not as bad, but it's got some pretty concerning elements to it. Turkey's done something similar. There's a lot of so-called uh well democracies or former democracies that are really going down this path so i think we're going to see a splintering of the internet mm. into lots of different countries i guess with with different standards and, and different values and and there might be some benefit that comes from that in in, in effect of reducing harmful content access but it will probably result in in a, in a splintering of the internet which is going to result in a lot of bad outcomes as well um to come bring it back to your question peter which I'll, i will eventually get to i guess the what perhaps Morrison is looking to do is, is build, with, with the internet splintering, he's looking to build a coalition of companies which are going to have the same standards and the same level of openness and the same sharing of information between them as a way of pushing back against uh, China and perhaps any of their allies. So it's, um, who knows where this is going to go. I'm, 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 not, a, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but it, it is fascinating.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say as well, Bruce Schneier has been warning about this for a while. He's like a, a security expert, but talking about how intelligence agencies have been essentially stockpiling digital weapons um, to be able to use in as a new frontier of conflict. Like, I, I don't think that's a conspiracy theory, and it's one of the reasons, like well, you know, while well, we at Digital Rights Watch, but many civil society organisations have advocated for strong encryption because encryption is a way to pre- for citizens to protect themselves. And too often, we see national security agencies, especially in Australia. Seeking to implement powers that allow them to weaken these systems for their own purposes in collecting intelligence, potentially advancing Australia's interests, you know, militarily, I suppose, over the long term, but certainly in the sense of intelligence, um, which then puts users at risk when the tables are turned, and this does become a much more active field of diplomatic relations, of potentially warfare. And, you know, you do realize the critical importance of people being able to secure their devices as against not, you know, just their own government, but also foreign interference and how we do really need national security agencies to not just advocate for themselves, but for the security of citizens. And we haven't seen that lately. We've seen them put their interests above the interests of citizens in keeping themselves secure. And we're gonna pay a price for that, I think, in future. We're gonna see more, obviously, um, things like ransomware attacks and criminal hacking, but also, I think, state-sponsored hacking uh, and potential, you know, very s- serious attacks conducted in a technological sense that have very real-world consequences for citizens in these countries. And I'm um, certainly worried about that over the long term. Mm.
2: I mean, these state-sponsored um, attacks are sort of the modern guerrilla warfare, aren't they? They're, they're mm. a way that you can do real harm to another um, country uh, that that, is a, that you want to do harm to, obviously. Uh, in a way which is not going to trigger perhaps larger um, conflict or, or traditional conflict in a way. So I mean we saw this last year with, with China undertaking a pretty substantial hack of Australia and, and Morrison going as far as to name them, which I think was unprecedented. So it's um, this is this is I think increasingly where the battles between these great powers is going
0: to be fought. It's going to be mm. fought in cyberspace rather than not necessarily between our militaries. Mm. The, the last point on this, I. One speech, that I think it was to the ASPE conference, Labor's um, Assistant Comms Minister, Tim Watts. What is concerning, though, is that while the libertarian vision of the early internet has now been universally rejected by the democratic nations, nothing has emerged to replace it as a practical philosophical framework to guide the exercise of democratic sovereignty over the internet. I thought that was kind of lived out this week. Um, The conference has at the heart of it, how we're going to build a submarine fleet sometime in the never-never with US and UK technology. It put the Indian Prime Minister on a pedestal. It also had um, Audrey Tang, who, Taiwanese um, Minister for Digital Engagement, it's regarded as best-of-breed citizen engagement in terms of government working with its citizens. So it seemed a little bit like there is still an attempt to define what the it is. So, I don't know, maybe good on ASPI for, for sort of trying to sort of build a base. Um, is a not-for-profit think tank, but it's funded heavily by the defence industry. So, it is kind of tied up in, I guess, the military-industrial complex, but it's probably just the tech wing of that.
1: I don't know what you mean by good on Aspie for doing it. I suppose I sort of think this is clearly a move by the Australian government to centralise and articulate um, a set of policy proposals for the near-to-medium future, for technology in their terms. And ASPE is the platform through which this happens. I don't think it's any surprise that these tech companies were showing up to a conference. And this is a heavy hitters on this list of speakers showing up to a conference that's essentially put on by the research or the civil society arm of the Australian military, military military-industrial complex. So, you know, I think we should take it for what it is, which is an articulation where the government sees technology and the technology industry going and where they have partnerships already with the existing industry and where they don't. So, you know, it's, it's obviously worth paying attention to for that reason, but um, we need to be pretty clear about it as I think analysts of this field um, as to what is going on in Sydney um, yeah, I must say I did get an invite, believe it or not. I'm not sure anyone else here did. No, no, Peter, no, Dan? No. No, I left off as usual. Yeah. Again. I don't think I'm not Katie sure what got in- me on that list. I but anyway.
0: Kate- I don't think Katie was invited either, but we might take this opportunity to welcome her into an Australian dialogue of sorts. Um, she also hasn't dropped a billion dollars into our local economy yet. <laughs> but um, still time though, still time. Yeah. <laughs> You want to give us just kind of a a bit of an overview of DuckDuckGo and the where and the why, and then we'll sort of dig into some of the policy issues that are in the face of smaller players in the sector. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Thanks for having me, Lizzie, Peter, and Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So DuckDuckGo is a privacy technology company. We offer a number of services that are free and easy for users to use to increase their privacy and security online. Our whole gamut is that we're just trying to make privacy simplified for users and raise a ch- standard trust online generally by not collecting any user data, which, of course, affects filter bubbles, targeted advertising, misinformation, and disinformation online. But we're also working to make sure that users, as they traverse the web, using our products and services are um, upgraded to the best uh, encryption standard possible, so trying to keep people secure as well. Our most popular product is our search engine, but we also have a mobile browser, an email protection service, um, and our also our desktop uh, extension, which does a lot of the same uh, work as a mobile browser. And we also dropped today our tracker blocker protection um, for our Android mobile uh, app, which will protect you from uh, cross-app tracking um, on the Android device, um, even to an extent better than on iOS. So we're very proud of that. So explain uh,
0: cross-app cross tracking. We're pro- it's yeah. probably happening and we don't even know it. What's that?
3: Yes. So I, on iOS, Apple will ask you if you want uh, to not be tracked and they'll just send the signal to companies and not disclose your, um, your advertising ID. And that's a way of preventing companies from tracking you across device. What we've done on Android is even more extensive because we're actually stopping uh, cross-app tracking on the device itself. Um, preventing them from seeing what you're doing in other apps, which we think is your prerogative and your right to privacy. Uh, so we're very excited to extend some of those protections for Android users that iOS has deployed, to, in some sense,
0: for their users. And how do you make a buck?
3: Ah, we uh, we work. We make money based on contextual advertising. So our our uh, search engine just shows you advertisements based on the query that you're searching for, the content of the page you're searching for. So if you go look for um a cat will you know show you maybe you're getting
0: a lot of credit Introducing, i know right (laughs) (laughs)
3: um we'll give you some maybe information about local humane society probably show you some ads for litter boxes and um, maybe a local vet but we're not going to show you an advertisement for a trip or a pair of shoes that you're considering um purchasing or going on a few months before
1: so can i ask you about that katie does that mean that if um both peter and i searched for cats we'd get the same ads is that part of it or um because obviously if I'd been browsing lots of different shoes I'd potentially get that or if um I don't know if Peter earned lots more money than me which is very possible (laughs) maybe he would get a different kind of um set of products than I would in that kind of advertising is that how it works that you essentially end up you do see ads but they're the ads that anybody would see if they were searching for that term
3: Yes, as long as they're in the same region and speaking the same language, basically. Um, so we do use some blunt location information to give you some more relevant local results, because, of course, you want to know about the Starbucks near you and not the Starbucks in another country. So that's one way that we're doing it. And then it's also a little bit based on language as well. So obviously, the, the advertisements are shown based on uh, the language you're searching in.
0: and you're a big fan of contextual advertising rather than micro-targeting, right?
3: well it's interesting I was going to ask you uh
2: actually Katie That the so my industry as you probably know uh, the publishing industry that is is going through a bit of a crisis as we as we deal with the end of cookies and the fact that we're not going to be able to follow people around the internet
0: as easily yeah
2: Yeah. well look I mean the Guardian welcomes this for, for clarity but I think the industry in general is pretty concerned about it um, and so there's lots of talk about sort of you know everything old is new again and going back to contextual advertising and and simply putting you know um, car ads in an auto section for example or, or ads for uh, holidays in the travel section and and whether that's going to be enough. So I mean my question for you, based on the insight that you've had with, with purely contextual advertising, is is there a market for it? I mean is it is it a substantial enough market because we've all I think been conditioned to think that digital has to be targeted in order to work. And I think you're sort of proving the opposite. So so give us, your, give us your insights.
3: Yeah. So we've had a very profitable model since 2014 using only contextual advertisements. And of course, I'm sure that you saw the report from the New York Times following the implementation of the GDPR and how they switched away from behavioral ads and actually saw an uptick in their revenue. Um, so we believe that this is a very profitable business model. However, we also think that governments, including Australia and the U.S., need to put in uh, protections for users to ensure that their data isn't being abused and that there's a more level playing field so that more companies are encouraged to embrace this contextual advertising model. I, as you mentioned, you've been told that behavioral advertising is the way to go. Um, definitely understand that message. But of course, it's coming from some of the two advertising giants in the world, Google and Facebook, who are the middlemen. Taking money as you place ads that may or may not be better targeted for the final user. So we think this is a great model. We encourage other companies to embrace it. And in the U.S., we've been working with publishers to ensure that users can um, opt out where they where possible, like under the California Consumer Privacy Act, of having their information sold to third parties. And um, that also ensures that publishers are. Um, respecting that signal and part of the better ecosystem that we're hoping to um, establish here in the U.S. and abroad.
0: And I raise, I think, the search elephant in the room on this, though. So I'm a big fan of DuckDuckGo. and wear the t-shirt proudly. I use DuckDuckGo as my default search but if I need a complex search, I still go back and search Google on DuckDuckGo and then use the Google search to do it. And I feel it's a bit like eating organic. Like I'm normally eating organic, but when I really need to have some chips, I'll go and get the chips. I do that too often. Um <laughs> get organic chips it seems too. to me, it seems to me that the 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 constraint of your more ethical search framework is that you don't collect as much data, so the search isn't as good. Is that fair or is that
3: So there, of course, are network effects with search engines. The more long, unique queries that you kind of mentioned there that a search engine is getting, the better the search engine is going to be responding with a relevant response for you. Um, However, there's really only two search engines in the Western world, as we like to call it. So America and the EU, basically, and that's Bing and Google. And of course, Microsoft has not had a high incentive to invest in Bing since Google has almost all of the market. Um, so we're hoping that as the competition between the two um, becomes more equitable and there's more protections for smaller competitors like us, that Microsoft will have more incentive to invest in the Bing search engine, that'll make it better. But you're right, Peter, the number of people using a search engine also affects how often they're seeing these unique search queries and how much better the algorithm is at delivering a relevant result.
0: But you, you your search engine is effectively Bing? Yes. Yeah,
3: right. So... Yeah, so Google does syndicate to exactly one partner um, and that start page, and they actually have it in their contract that they're not supposed to grow past a certain amount. Um, so all the other third-party search engines like Ecosia, Dudiko, and others are being syndicators. Um, that's because it takes a lot of money and capital to stand up an internet crawler. And of course, also websites already have built into their into their code which crawlers they're allowing to see what their, where the website is. And then in addition, exactly as you mentioned, the number of queries that you're getting affects the relevancy of the results. And so you would have to have that crawler and then a high amount of queries in order to create your own search engine from Scratch tomorrow.
2: Katie, can I ask, what what about this new model which has emerged with Neva, the subscription-based search model, which uh, is also claiming to take a very... Um, privacy respectful approach and and you know never showing ads. It's based entirely on subscriptions and claims that can be relevant. What what's your I mean I appreciate they're probably a competitor of yours, but nonetheless I'd be interested in your take on on what role that has to play and whether you see see that being something which could be part of the, the search ecosystem going forward, I guess.
3: Yeah, so we're really excited to have more search engines in this space. We think the higher number of other reputable search engines that are in the market that only it means that companies like us are going to have more um, more users coming to our site because they'll trust that they can get great information from places other than Google, which is definitely true. Uh, With Neva, I don't really know if the value proposition is one that I would value. Uh, You know, you have to pay them a subscription every month, and then they're showing you more relevant search results for just you, which I don't know about you, Dan, but this past year, I became very aware of my filter bubble, and I'm definitely not looking to dive deeper into it. Um, and so one thing that we love to say here at Dada .go is every time you run a search on Dada .go, it's like you're running it for the first time. And I really value that kind of open view of the web and what relevant results are being returned to me without a company making decisions about what they think I want. Um, so this is kind so of me- a
2: off then, isn't it, Katie? I mean, you, you could, in a way, they solve the, the problem that Peter has identified in that that they are tracking what you search and what you're interested in. And they, they do have a profile on you and therefore serving you more relevant results over time. But the downside of that or the trade-off for that is you're not getting the same result as what everybody else is getting. And so you are potentially seeing filter bubbles and those sorts of things. Is that, is that a fair summary?
3: That That's my perspective. I also believe that Neva's proposition is that, that you give them more personal information so that they can show you particularly what you would want. I don't really want to export my brain in that sense and don't feel like that's helpful. But I do see how I, you know, I could have family members that would would be very helpful for them because they're not on the computer that often. They just want the best result. And definitely my mother-in-law would love it if she could search the entire web for one email she can't find in her inbox. Um, So we could definitely see how this would be helpful for some users, but um, we are very proud of our private search service without any fees and we'll continue that in the future. But we're excited to have a new partner in this space.
1: Mm. Can I ask a couple of questions, Katie, as well? Like, I mean, I I can definitely see the utility in expanding the number of participants in the market for search because monopolistic markets obviously have can have pretty dire consequences. So I I can see the utility in having more players. As someone who's like into big government, I can also see utility in government investing in this space. But I also don't want government running a search engine for obvious reasons that I don't want them to see what I'm looking up. But I do wonder, what do you think? Um, is I mean, I, I think there's space for things like non-profit companies, community organizations to also expand into this field. So I think we probably share value there in the sense that the more players in that market, including right across the spectrum from profitability to kind of community grassroots based organizations contributes to a better ecosystem. But what do you think the role of government then is in this space? Is it to, you know, government obviously invests in research and development, but they also do things like procurement. Um, they also obviously regulate monopolistic markets or, or or fail to. If you were to talk about what you think government could do to limit the monopolistic power of a company like Google, what would you be recommending? Yeah, so what we would recommend is actually
3: pretty well encapsulated by the ACCC's uh, recent third interim report for the digital services consultation, um, which is a requirement of a uh, search engine choice screen to be shown to users. So, right now, Google has bought up the default position across platforms and services. Meaning that whenever you open a new device, get it out of the box for the first time, if you perform a search on that device, it's going to be through Google. Same thing for most major browsers. And of course, within Australia, Google has a great market share in search, but also a huge market share in their most popular desktop browser, which is Chrome. And so, one thing that we're really facing is the inability to get in front of users' eyes and to make it easy for users to switch to another search engine provider. And so, we're really excited to see the ACCC report um, suggesting a requirement for search engine preference menus and for uh, greater ease of switching between defaults, because we know, of course, that defaults rule the world still for most of our devices and services. And so we're really interested in governments doing this kind of market intervention to level the playing field and allow other companies like ours to uh, put their value proposition in front of users and say, like, look, come to us. We won't take your personal data, but we will give you great search results. And we're hoping that more and more people will uh, come to what we call the duck side um, and use DuckDuckGo because, you know, every time you search on Google, you're giving them so much personal information Um, And so we're really hopeful that we can turn away from the surveillance ads business model.
1: Yeah, well, because that's the other component, right? Because as well as the ACCC um, report, which, you know, I like some of it, I don't like other parts of it. But, you know, I appreciate that this is a field in which other regulators have potentially not done as good a job or engaged with the issue as much. And I appreciate the ACCC is is trying um, and that's to be commended, even if you have criticisms of some of the aspects of it. But the other component, the other bit that we're going through at the moment here in Australia is a review of our Privacy Act. And you do wonder whether the other, or what I always think about in this context is trying to stop it at its source. So stopping the collection of data, but then also the micro targeting that flows from it, because that would then mean that Google did have to fundamentally change its business model. And to my mind, it also seems like a field in which most people don't appreciate how this actually happens. And if they did know, they'd be horrified, and feel violated. That's my impression because when you do tell people about how surveillance capitalism works, and how invasive it is, and how it's in all these devices and a growing number of internet of things devices. You know, I think they are mildly horrified and can either switch to being enraged by it or also feeling a bit hopeless about it. And I do wonder whether the privacy is the way through there, because I do think it's it's the kind of framing that certainly human rights, digital rights organizations use. And that maybe is the regulatory space as well, where, where potentially action could come that would shift that monopolistic market.
3: Yeah, I, I definitely see some of the recommendations from the HCC report as being privacy recommendations. Here in the United States, we've had a couple of antitrust policy bills also introduced in the House and Senate. And we've been talking to offices saying like, look, not only would this be very helpful in leveling the playing field for competitors like us, but also would be a privacy package. And it would ensure that users, like you mentioned, once they find out what's happening with our surveillance capitalism ad economy, that they have something to turn to versus just feeling hopeless. Um, And I feel like we put too much onus on users, either through the GDPR here in the U.S., to you know, make their choices clear without actually really a lot of choices being in the market. And so that's one reason why competition regulation is so important to us and we think works hand in hand with privacy protections.
2: I could just pick up on that as well. I mean I think privacy combined with purpose limitations, I think is a pretty powerful tool. Yeah. If you if you can if you can restrict the amount of data that any one entity can collect. Uh, and its application, but you can also restrict the combining of that data. I, mean, I think one of the advantages that Google and many of the other companies actually have is that they can collect data from search, for example, and potentially use that data for targeted advertising uh, on publishers like The Guardian. And I think most people don't understand that that's taking place. To your point, Lizzie, and and I think if they did, they would be they would be pretty concerned about it. If you can restrict that from taking place, if you can if you can make sure that whatever data is collected collected is not only reasonable and therefore limited, but also the portability of it is limited, then you can effectively achieve, um, you know, what is close to a, a, a breakup of these companies without actually having to them, forcing them to do so. You can, you can force Google from stopping to use Google maps, for example, stop using Google maps as a, as a cost of acquisition, if you like, or, or or a way to acquire data to improve their other services, and it, it improves the competition of the whole ecosystem. So, um, anyway, that's probably more of a comment than a question, Katie. But that's, um, I think, privacy combined with data and purpose limitations, uh, which I guess could still fall under the, the banner of privacy, is is what's going to what's going to solve this. And I'm I'm encouraged by the direction that the ACCC and our privacy review is going. Actually,
1: can I add two cents, though, as a litigator? Maybe I'm like a hammer and everything looks like a nail, but I'm also just infuriated as to how privacy violations in this country don't come with a civil penalty provision. You know, in in California, if your privacy is violated under that the relevant legislation, you get a, you can get a civil penalty. You know, the our privacy watchdog just handed down decision about Clearview AI scraping Facebook for images and then training their facial recognition model and said, can you stop doing it and delete all your Australian information, which I expect Clearview AI will just simply ignore, and it did not impose any civil penalties. And I sort of think that has to change. Like, I know civil penalties aren't the only way in which this does change, but I do think money does talk, and certainly in other fields like um, you know, cartels, anti-competitive behaviour in places like Europe, heavy civil penalties do make a difference. And part of the reason why I think some of these business models have been flourishing is that there doesn't really feel like there's the appropriate mechanisms in place to penalise them, not just from a formal legal perspective, but also in monetary terms. And it just kills me a little bit to see privacy violations being recognised by the regulator, but coming with no financial consequences for the companies who engage. And you can just imagine the kind of message that sense to them internally um isn't isn't that
2: changing though with the privacy review isn't one of the things that they're proposing that that consumers would have the ability to
1: let's see shall we
2: (laughs) you sound skeptical
1: yeah um, I I am and I also think if you have to prove harm that's a big problem too like you shouldn't the harm is often collective and socialized or it might be um extremely small for you as a person but then uh, at a a broad scope very large or there's huge benefits to be gained by accruing that as a company Mm. and You know, I just don't want it, again, to be left to the individual to do. We need kind of systemic answers to this and, you know, large-scale action available to all regulators to address it.
0: Can Can I I bring Katie back in? Sorry. (laughs) Um, This is like our regular privacy geek out. so you're in Washington, D.C. From a distance, it seems like there is lots of activity going on um, from the Biden administration in terms of moving to put the um, the clamps on big tech. Um, it must have been interesting for you to hear from our perspective the discussions about the geopolitics of tech from Australia, but I'm just interested in any reflections you've got from the earlier discussion, but also just a bit of a, I guess, on the ground um, report on what is actually going on in Washington at the moment, and whether it's all just a bunch of headlines, and it seems every Netflix drama about tech ends up with House testimony as its dramatic high point. Is that the end of it, or is there real progress in the wind over there?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, privacy law in the U.S. I think is is um, a goal that we've worked on now for over twenty years, and definitely not going to happen in this congressional session, sadly. Um, I think the focus on competition though is a very interesting one. I think one that has garnered a lot of bipartisan support, which is really, really, I think very encouraging. Um yeah, I agree with you. A lot of a lot of these big these big scandals like Cambridge Analytica just result in a lot of a lot of hearings without a lot of action. I'm very hopeful that we can have some action here through legislation on competition issues. I'm also hopeful that in the next session, we may have some consensus around privacy laws. If nothing else, many states in the U.S. are passing them. And so eventually, maybe they'll force the federal government's hand. But I'm also very encouraged by the Department of Justice's case against Google for their monopoly in search and the Attorney General's case uh, from several states here in the U.S. against Google for their monopoly in advertising. I think those two litigations are probably our best chance at some real positive change here within the U.S., And I'm also really excited for this to be a precedent setting moment for the uh, industry, just the same way that the Microsoft antitrust case in the late 90s was. Um, So I'm hopeful. Uh, We're working very hard to get um, anti-self-preferencing legislation passed here in the United States. Um, and we're really, really excited to see Australia put forth such a great report on search engines and dominance in that area, and also put forth really well thought out recommendations built on the back of other um, kind of failed um, failed enforcement actions in other jurisdictions. Uh, and we're really hopeful to see Australia put forth maybe the best model for leveling the playing field, especially within this search engine market. One of the things
2: that I think is hugely problematic with the way that the internet has evolved particularly around information at least, is is that we do have two really dominant companies, obviously, in Google and Facebook. And to a large extent, Google's algorithm controls the digital economy and can literally make and break businesses and has done so with algorithm changes. And and Facebook probably does that to a certain extent as well within their ecosystem, but more importantly, controls the information that about half of the population sees. Um, And again, can can change that uh, completely uh, at, at a whim or on a whim. My question is, I think I'll focus on the search side of things, given your background. But I have been saying for a long time that I think that these companies like Google, uh, being able to say our algorithm is our commercial trade secret and therefore no one can have any insight to it, is hugely problematic and is not something that is that can can be is sustainable anymore. I just think it's it's too important to the businesses, um, individuals uh, that that use their service to to remain something which is a black box. And there has to be some level of transparency. Now, Google's retort to that is, but if we were to show, uh, give you any insight into how our algorithm works, people would game the system. And I'm sure that that is true to an extent, but I'm wondering, is there a middle ground there? Because it feels to me like this current, the, the way that we're operating now is, is just not good enough. What's your take on it?
3: Yeah, I, I think that there has to be some breaking open of the algorithmic black box. You know, you mentioned small businesses and I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned them because I think they're another partner here that has been missed. Like their information is also being taken by these big tech giants and used against them anti-competitively, either through the provision of other white label products or, as you mentioned, um, just changing the algorithm a little bit and that totally affects their business. When Facebook, Instagram, and all the properties went down for a few hours a few weeks ago, we all bemoaned it because we couldn't see what our aunt was doing. But actually, it was a huge problem for small businesses that basically host their web pages on Facebook. Um, I think we have to break open the algorithm, if nothing else, to allow people to have more control over their newsfeed. But I also think that it would be extremely helpful for our own democratic uh, populace to understand how information is being shown to them and why. Um, I think that, you know, we, we think that these technologies are very smart and helpful, but I think often we don't think about what they're prioritizing, and often they're not prioritizing what we should be. Um, so I think there should definitely be a middle ground. I know um, legislators here in the U.S. are working on algorithmic transparency bills, and I'm also hopeful that the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S. under the stewardship of Lena Khan will work on this issue as well.
2: So you don't think it would destroy the business then if there was more transparency? You think that, that a search engine can still operate with with more yeah. transparency than what's, yeah.
3: I really think Sorry, so, you know, um, and, you know, we've seen the bad, we've already seen the proof in the pudding of what's going to happen if we allow companies to continue to control the algorithms with no oversight. And so I think that this is definitely something that has to be broken up by the government to some extent. I'm not really sure where the line is on opening up the algorithm, at what point we're getting to our trade secrets since we don't control the uh, SERP algorithm ourselves, we, we're we a little agnostic on that front. But I definitely think we have to have more transparency in order to have uh, better regulation of our content, our communications online.
1: Katie, do you think that includes not just transparency, but also the capacity for people to dictate how they want it to look for themselves? Like, you know, essentially modification and the right to be able to modify things to suit you in a meaningful way. Is that part of it? Because I don't know, you sort of edge towards a kind of open source model in some ways, but yeah, I'm interested to know what you think about that.
3: I think so. I mean, for years, people have been asking for a simple change to a chronological, like news feed or a uh, Twitter feed, and still the companies will change it back the second you re-log into the system to be whatever their algorithm is doing. Um, I'm really interested in users having more control over their devices. I think one, um, One missed lesson from the ACCC search engine report is showing how clearly users don't have control over their defaults, really don't have control over their devices, including one of the most personal devices that you use all day, which is your phone. If you buy a product and you own this product, you should be able to delete Google Chrome off of it, even if it's a pixel. And I think you should be able to change your algorithm to fit you a little bit better. I think some simple blunt changes would be probably the first ones, right? Like chronological or my friends first, something like that. Um, but I think as we become more tech literate and we become more digital natives, I think that that's only a natural progression that we're going to ask for.
0: Excellent. Um, and finally, congratulations on your TV ads, which I saw on the interweb <laughs> as well. Your deodorant rash, your favorite cheese,
3: and whatever you were searching for at 1.15am, that's really none of our business because your life is private. And unlike other tech companies, we think your internet should be too. Oh, what kind of dog is that? That's none of our business either. Protect your privacy online for free
0: with DuckDuckGo. They're really funny. Um, what was behind that? And has it sort of served its purpose?
3: Yeah, no, we we really love, we love our TV ads. It's very exciting for us to be able to emerge into TV. Um, and of course we here at DuckDuckGo love ducks. So we had to include them as part of the TV ad bid. Um, but, you know, The COVID pandemic was very hard for a lot of people, but also meant that the ad prices went a little bit lower for the past year. So it enabled us to be a little more crafty with our advertising places. So I'm really glad that they're reaching you. Um, I'll show you a small market for us, but one we care a lot about, especially since ACCC is trying its best to implement the right regulations. And of course, the Center
0: for Responsible Technology is a good partner for us. Yeah, And thanks again for your support. Um, Thanks for your time today. Before we go, anything on your, your your list for the week, Lizzie, that we should be keeping an eye out for?
1: Perhaps not, not for the week, but early in um, December we're, we're having our last event in the our project about rebalancing the internet economy, which sort of comes out of some of the things we were talking about today, looking at movement building and political organising online and how we can make that work better. It's called Gather. It's coming up in early December, if you want to, the 9th of December, I should say, if you want to come along, then, you know, of course, get on our email list and find out more. But these are the kinds of discussions we want to have with activists about how we could make the internet work for them better. Uh, and you know, it's it's a really important conversation and perhaps from the other end of the spectrum of people who are using it and figuring out how to make that work. Um, so yeah, feel free to come along and sign up to be part of it.
0: And our other very exciting news is that I think in about a week's time, there'll be Centre of Responsible Technologies putting out a book of essays called The Public Square Project that I've edited with Jordan. Lizzie contributed, Dan contributed, basically anyone who has probably been on this screen over the year, Mark Andrejevic, um, fantastic contribution Belinda Barnett and what we're trying to do is look at kind of the year the, obviously the, the Facebook takedown at the beginning of the year some of the attempts to regulate um, tech in various guys and also some of the bigger ideas on what we could do separately including my pet idea of a, a public social or civic network so we're actually going to have live events in three cities so if you're in Sydney we're putting on a big lunch in chinatown on december 9 Uh, we've got a politics in the pub in canberra on december 1 and we're going to do some drinks in melbourne lizzie december 14 so Mm -hmm. if you're any of those three cities we'll let you know and you'd be really welcome to join us in real life god seems like a Strange thing to be even contemplating. Dan and Lizzie have still not met each other in the flesh, which I think is just
1: a I think this is my best angle on screen, so it might be a disappointment.
0: Anyway, on that note, have a great weekend, everyone, and thanks for um, being part of Burning Platforms. You've been listening to Burning Platforms from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. This episode was recorded in a live webinar held on November 19th. You can access previous editions at our website, centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au, where you can also subscribe to TechCheck, our summary of the latest news and ideas. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again soon.